Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Amen for the son of Mary. Hallelujah for the victory that entails. We're going to consider that victory this morning from an unusual place. We're going to look at the book of Revelation chapter 12. But before you turn there and before I dive in, why don't we ask God uh, to visit us by way of His Holy Spirit in a special way to, to grant us insight and understanding into this text. Would you bow with me? God, thank you for this season. God, thank you for family and friends and thoughts of peace on earth and calm and tranquility. And God, the blessing of the gift of your son is something we could never give you enough back to repay. And God, we thank you. That's that's not what you're really looking for. God, you're looking for our hearts and You have come to change us and transform us, and and God, we pray that you would deepen our understanding of the meaning of Christmas this morning and the victory that you have secured by coming down, taking on our flesh, living the life we should have lived and didn't, dying the death we should have died and now don't have to because you are risen and ascended and reigning, King of kings and Lord of lords, and God, may we depart today more willing to serve you, more willing to love you, more willing to to step down for you than ever before. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to speak to you on the subject of Christmas as victory or victorious Christmas from Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And as you're making your way to the book of Revelation, I want to note that it is the Revelation period, no S. It is the revelation, singular, not plural. It is the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 of chapter 1, it's also called a prophecy, which means it stands in the, the line of literature, which is akin to that of the Old Testament Prophets. If you think of the Old Testament prophets, it was written to a people in a time and a situation to both warn and to encourage and to comfort God's people with the assurance of God's victory and victory for those who belong to God who is victorious. There's a decision to be made in the literature of prophecy. Will I stand with God who, in spite of what I see around me, will be victorious or will I go my own way? Revelation is a letter that's circulated to seven real churches with real people in them. We learn that some of the churches in the early chapters of Revelation were apathetic, some were morally compromised, and some were persecuted. John tells these churches that God's promise of life and life everlasting in the Son and with the Son and for the Son is assured for the one who conquers. And the rest of the book, 
is committed to helping us understand who is it that conquers. And what we discover in the book of Revelation is that victory for those who conquer is not going to immediately look like victory. It's why when Paul says we're more than conquerors, people are like, we are? I mean, we're suffering, we're afflicted, we're persecuted, we're abandoned. No, you're not. Not if you're in Christ. After John addresses the churches, he has a a vision of the heavenly throne room, and he hears a conquering, roaring, kingly lion. But he turns around, and what does he see? He doesn't see a lion. He sees a sacrificed, bloody lamb who is nevertheless alive. It is this lamb who conquers by his blood who is worshipped along with the one who is on the throne. And it is this lamb, this crucified and risen King Jesus, who alone is worthy to open the scroll, the unfolding of world history, culminating in the kingdom of God. And in the opening of the seals of the scroll, and then the trumpets and the bowls, we see portraits of the coming kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And what we see in Revelation is it's not an easy path. And John wants us to see, church, the paradox, that the paradox of a Savior who triumphs by dying is a model for the church. As we face adversity and affliction, it is our faithfulness under fire that will bring the nations to repentance and glory to King Jesus. As odd as it is that the King of kings and Lord of lords would die to bring victory That same paradigm exists in the church today. They they suffer so well. They endure so well. They are long-suffering so well in the face of adversity. And it grabs the attention of the watching world. That's Revelation's message. Churches suffering either from spiritual apathy or moral compromise or persecution. These churches have every reason to remain faithful or to return to faithfulness. Those who conquer are those who are faithful to the end. When we come to chapter 12, John gives us two signs or symbols to show the battle of the faithful is not ultimately against people, against flesh and blood, but is against the ancient serpent, the devil and Satan, as he'll be called later in chapter 12, who hates God's Son. And yet, Christmas proves to us God's Son has come. He has been born. And those who are faithful like Mary was faithful now bear Him to a world of suffering and torment and loss, no matter how great the cost. We can be victorious. We can be conquerors because of Christmas. Hear with me the Word of God. Beginning in verse 1. And we'll, we'll break this into three sections of reading, all right? So verses 1 through 6 is where we'll begin. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it she gave birth to a male child 
one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished 1,260 days. What in the world? Pastor, what are you doing to me? I, this is what I want you to see in verses 1 through 6. We've got to understand that Christmas means Satan couldn't stop the Messiah. That's what Christmas means. Satan could not stop the Messiah. Neither could he stop Mary who bore the Messiah. So let me get to the end before we really get started. You're called to bear Christ to a world that needs Him. Very, very. Mary bore Christ in birth pains, in agony, to a lost and dying world. And now that you know Christ and have Christ on the inside, you're called, in a sense, to be like Mary, to get Him to the world. And what is your protection? What is your assurance in a world of affliction and suffering and dying and poverty and adversity? What is your assurance that you're going to win? It's that you're carrying the Messiah. And Satan doesn't stop the Messiah. And Christmas proves it. When we, when we think of Christmas, we often think of, of peace on earth. And we, and we should think of peace on earth because peace is coming ultimately to the earth. The whole earth will be full of His glory. The meek will inherit the earth. How? Because of Jesus and the victory that He gets beginning at Christmas. But Revelation 12 is showing us that peace on earth is possible because God has waged a war. You don't get peace without war. He sent his son to conquer Satan. And the war that began in the Garden of Eden. You remember the war that began in the Garden? Eve was tempted by that ancient serpent, as we'll see. And he deceived her and she sinned and Adam sinned. And that brought a curse. Curse is upon God's people and upon the earth. And after Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord promised that he would end this war one day. Do you remember in Genesis 3.15? It's a great verse to memorize, a great verse to be aware of its presence in your Bible because Genesis 3.15 frames our understanding of the rest of God's Word. And here, here's what God says to Satan. He says, I'm going to put enmity between the serpent or between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He's going to bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Satan is going to try to attack the Messiah, and he'll bruise his heel, but ultimately the Messiah is going to trample Satan underfoot, and he's going to crush his head. That promise is given to humanity right out of the garden. And Satan goes on the attack right out of the garden. We see this conflict between Satan and, and fallen man throughout the Old Testament in the conflict between the two seeds, Cain versus Abel. Ishmael versus Isaac, Esau versus Jacob, Saul versus David. We, we see it as God overcomes the barrenness of Sarah and Rebekah and Tamar and Ruth. These women who couldn't have children end up being great, 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 great grandmothers in the line of the Messiah. You see, the, the journey to Jesus is filled with satanic opposition to God's Son and the women who bore Him. The sons in the line to the Messiah. The struggle to get to the Savior 
is now represented in Revelation 12, Genesis 3, Satan's going to be conquered. Revelation 12, the end of the book, God did it. And we see two signs. We see this in verse 1 and 3, 1 through 3. We, we, we read first of a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. This, this reminds us of Joseph's dream in Genesis 37. Verses 9 through 11. You remember he had the dream. His brothers are all bowing down to him. And in that dream, Jacob is represented as the sun. And his mother, Rachel, as the moon. And the stars were Joseph and his brothers, the tribes of Israel. This sign is a little bit different, however. Because there's a mother who's wrapped in the sun, clothed with the glory of God. But there's no dad. Huh. Sounds a lot like Jesus, who comes from Mary but is miraculously conceived in her and has no human father. And, and this woman stands over the moon, which may refer either to the permanent nature of the church, which will stand forever, or it could refer to the hopes of all those faithful mothers down through the centuries waiting for the promised son to come. And in Mary, she, in a sense, stands over all the other mothers who have come before because through her, the promises of God have been fulfilled. Either way we take it, and I would argue that both are accurate, and we'll see that in a moment, the woman clearly represents Mary because she gives birth to the son who, in verse 5, is the one to rule the nations, which is a direct quotation of the messianic promise of Psalm Chapter 2, verse 9. So John sees this woman as Mary, but he also sees her as representative of God's people who have lived in anticipation of the coming Son. The one who would vanquish Satan, the liar, the accuser, and the murderer. Through Mary, God provides His Son to raise up sons and daughters of the true Israel and to graft in even Gentiles who would believe in this Son. Which brings us to the final way that the woman is used in the book of Revelation chapter 12. In verse 17, we'll see a woman representing clearly the church on mission who is making disciples, who become sons and daughters these are called the rest of her offspring. So the woman in the text of Revelation 12, I want to make sure you get the, the referent points, what she signifies. The woman represents the fulfillment of the motherly messianic expectation of Israel. For centuries, moms are looking for a son to come. The woman represents Mary, who gave literal birth to the literal Messiah who rules the nations, and by verse 17, she represents the church, the bride of Christ, who, like Mary, carries the Messiah to still more so that they may be born again and join the family. These are the rest of her offspring. Has everybody got that? All right, so in verse 2, we find a woman crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. Church, Mary's righteousness did not remove her from pain and hardship. Somebody asked me just a few weeks ago, do you think Mary, when she bore Jesus to the world, did she like have pain like all the other mothers? Absolutely. She didn't get a pass on the agony of bringing salvation to the world. Neither do we get a pass on the agony sometimes of living for Christ in a broken and fallen world. 
From a worldly perspective, by the way, Mary had many reasons to throw in the towel and walk away from her divine assignment. Maybe some of you here this morning are feeling beaten down. It's the holiday season. Maybe memories of a a lost loved one or a family member. Maybe there's cancer. Maybe, I I don't know, a a job loss. Something's going on in your life. And you're like, man, maybe maybe I just need to throw in the towel. Don't throw in the towel. Mary didn't throw in the towel. She had many reasons to quit. Her fiancé considered abandoning her. People whispered about her. She made the trek to Bethlehem to give birth alongside of animals with no epidural. She remained faithful to deliver God's Son in spite of all of that. And here is John's implied point. If bearing Jesus to the world was filled with pain and agony for Mary, we shouldn't be surprised that bearing Him to the world now is challenging and that it comes with costs and inconveniences and hardships, but Jesus is worth it. In verse 3, another sign appears. We read of the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. In verse 9, John clarifies that the dragon is Satan, the ancient deceiving serpent. Red signifies the unmitigated bloodthirstiness of Satan. He is the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy, John 10.10. The dragon, as Johnson writes, is shown in symbols signaling his cunning wisdom. He has seven heads, seemingly perfect in his wisdom. His great power, ten horns, another number in the Bible for completion and perfection. And he had authority to influence others, seven diadems. He seems to be the perfect rival to God and to God's Son. And yet, only a third part of the angelic host, the stars of heaven, join him on mission to murder the Messiah. In verse 4, Satan is represented as being ready to devour, to consume, to eat up the woman's child and secure a victory for himself. In a sense, God's people had been in labor and at war with Satan for centuries. Achan reminds us of some of these times when he says, Satan moved Satan to, excuse me, Satan moved Pharaoh to kill Hebrew baby boys. Do you remember that in the Exodus, in Exodus 1 and 2? The Hebrew midwives saving those baby boys that they were supposed to kill. He moved wicked Athaliah to destroy the royal heirs of the house of Judah in 2 Chronicles chapter 22. He moved Haman to plot the genocide of of the Jews in the book of Esther. And once Jesus was born, do you remember in Matthew 2? He moved Herod to try and kill Jesus. But Satan is no match. For the promised son. Verse 5 summarizes God's victory so, so simply. Satan was trying, he was trying, he was trying. She gave birth to a male child. Satan lost. Hallelujah. Glory to God in the highest. The promised son arrived. Yes, Satan tried to stop it. He tried to use world authorities and Herod to stop it, but Jesus is God's anointed and appointed son. He is the one that the Lord said would rule or shepherd or break the nations. And in the translation we read about in verse 5, it says, but Jesus has been caught up to his throne 
The word is and in the Greek, and that's important. Sometimes it's not important. This time, the conjunction is very important. It's not but he was caught up. It's and he was caught up. And the reason that the word and is important is it's not like, oh, now we've got to wait for victory. We've got to wait for Jesus to do something. No, and Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. He has gone to the throne. He is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God in righteousness where he prays for his people now, and he pours out his spirit now as we wait his glorious return and in the meantime we bear this king faithfully to a lost dying and dangerous and defeated world which is the point of verse 6 where we see a woman fleeing into the wilderness but nourished by God hold that thought we're going to pick it up in the third point for right now what you need to know is the Satan tried to stop the Messiah from coming to die for sin and for sinners and he failed Christ has come, he's been raised to the right hand of the Father, and therefore victory is assured. Verse 7, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. The second thing I want you to see from this text is this. We need to understand that Christmas means our enemy is a defeated foe. Our enemy is a defeated foe, and salvation in Christ is assured. Yes, we've got a battle against Satan, but Satan has lost. And if you're in Christ, he's a loser. In verse, verses 7 through 12, we, we see this battle in heaven. We're not, we're not told when the, the battle occurs. But it's linked with what happens at Christmas. Because of what Jesus did in his earthly ministry, Satan and his angels, the demons, are banished from heavenly access. Michael is the archangel. He's the protector of God's people. His name means, who is like God? Interestingly enough, Satan said in Isaiah 14, 14, I will be like God. I will be like the Most High. And here we have Satan and the archangel battling it out on the basis of what Christ has accomplished at Christmas. And Satan is on the losing end of that part. He gets thrown down. In verse 7, excuse me, verse 9, he's thrown down to earth and his demons with him. This is a a seismic victory that is portrayed in Revelation 12. The, The great dragon Satan is presented as a fierce enemy, a As the ancient serpent, he is the one who seduced Adam and Eve. 
As the devil, he is the accuser, the slanderer. He wants to bring up your past. He wants to attack you about what happened yesterday that you haven't dealt with, that keeps coming back up. Why do I have this thing that's going on in my life? He wants you to feel weak in your parenting and weak in your marriage. He wants you to rip you away from confidence in Christ. And he wants to slander and accuse and distort. He wants to beat you up. He's the devil. And as Satan, he is the enemy who works through deception of the whole world. John is showing us that because of the earthly ministry of Jesus, which began at Christmas, Satan no longer has a basis for accusing those who belong to Jesus. Do you believe that? Satan loses through Jesus the basis for accusing you if you are in Christ. The blood of Christ stands in your place Satan and his angels have been defeated, permanently banned from heavenly access. Aiken says this, the critical and crucial battle is done. The end of the war is soon to follow. In verse 10, John hears a loud voice announcing that everything necessary for salvation has been settled. Salvation, that is divine rescue from God's just penalty for sin, it has come through the blood of Christ. Power, that is power to live for God in the present, it has come in the sending of the Holy Spirit by the risen and ascended King of Kings. The kingdom of God has come to hearts which have been miraculously transformed by the Spirit of God and which are now yielded to the authority of Christ the Son. In the place of Satan's accusations, guess what we get? We get glorious assurances secured by King Jesus. I love what Aiken says here to Christians. He says, brothers and sisters, when Satan accuses you of being a grievous sinner, you're just a wretch, you're just a sinner. Listen to what Aiken says. You look him in the eye and you say to him, you are right, I am. But... But I have a Savior greater than my sin. He has given me salvation and power and a kingdom and the authority of my Messiah. I've been delivered and I am safe from your accusations now and forevermore. That's the victory of Christmas. Church, in the place that matters, in the courtroom of heaven, Christ's death and resurrection and ascension is the vindication for all who call upon the name of the Lord and believe. And if you're afflicted this morning, and if you're suffering under the weight of your own sin, there is one way for that to be removed, the power of it to be taken, to be sapped. It is in the blood of Christ. It is through faith in the crucified, risen, reigning King Jesus. Because of that, Satan... Satan's been cast down. He's been cast down to earth where he keeps on accusing. But his accusations do not cancel the blood of the Lamb or the word of our testimony. And what is our testimony? It's what I just read. You're right, I'm a sinner. You're right, I'm a wretch, but I've been forgiven and redeemed and bought by the blood of Jesus. And Satan, you can't do nothing with that. We overcome 
by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. If your testimony this morning is, man, I'm just going to be a little bit better tomorrow. I'm just going to try a little bit harder. You still haven't gotten the gospel. It's only those whose testimony is, don't look at me, look at Jesus. And when you look at Jesus... I can't fully explain it, but in Him, I've been redeemed and accepted and cleansed and bought and purchased. He is my advocate. You do, you take it, Satan. You do with that what you will, loser. And if, if we believe that, if we believe that, our victory is proven not just by, by what we say and can clap at. It's proven, get this, by... By our willingness to die for our king. They love not their life even to death. It's proven by loving Jesus more than life itself. And when you are there, not even an incredibly intelligent and powerful enemy can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The bloody death of the martyrs does not signal their defeat. It signals Satan's defeat. They love Jesus more than they love their life. And Christ will vindicate them. How thoroughly are we washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We give ourselves freely to Him in this life with full assurance of life everlasting in the world to come. I want to ask you, are you giving yourself freely to your King who bought you with His blood today? Freely, liberally, excitedly. I get to give to God. Not, not just financially. Certainly it includes financially. But, you know, it's hard to be real with people. It takes a vulnerability and a, a transparency that, that you can't get to unless you realize that Satan, the accuser, is wrong. And that you are who God says you are in Christ. So you can come into community. You can be real and authentic and transparent about where you're struggling. And you, you can ask for healing and for prayer and forgiveness and deliverance. You can step into friendships that are awkward and clunky at first. Because church is hard that way. But you can press through and give yourself freely to this community for the glory of our King because of who God says you are. He doesn't say who Satan wants you to believe that you are when you got up this morning and you didn't like, I don't know, that pimple on your forehead or I just about shaved my whole chin off this morning and I couldn't get it to stop. And the first thing I thought was, you're such an idiot. And I am. But in Christ, I'm a redeemed, saved child of God. Satan doesn't like being a loser. Verse 12 tells us he knows that his time is short. So for as long as he can, he does all that he can to limit the size and the scope of the Savior's success. For as long as he can, he'll do all that he can to limit the size and the scope of the Savior's success. Let's begin reading in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent 
into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. It's a picture of the the growing, multiplying church on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The final point this morning is this, because Christ is one, we as the people of God can bear Him in this present wilderness until He comes. Did you know you're not in the promised land yet? You got the promised land on the inside, but on the outside, life is hard. When Satan and his demons are cast down to the earth, he pursues the woman. The period of 1,260 days in verse 6, or a time and times and half a time in verse 14, they're the same amount of time. It's the same amount of time as the 42 months that's going to be mentioned in Back in chapter 11 and ahead in chapter 13. This, this time is a reference to the time of the persecution of the saints during the time of the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 verse 25. In other words, in chapters 11 through 13, John is showing us a, a time of simultaneous trouble and triumph for the people of God. In the wilderness, but protected. Pursued by Satan, but victorious in God's presence. Do you see that? In this present wilderness, but but God is my protection. Satan chasing me down, but I have the presence of God. Notice what Satan does. He, He pursues the woman. He pursues, do you remember Mary and Joseph as they flee to Egypt to protect Jesus? And when Christ ascends to the throne, Satan pursues the church. The defeated dragon couldn't stop the sun from reigning in heaven, so he comes after the church who is serving him on earth. And verse 14 tells us that God protects his church. What a glorious truth. Look at verse 14. The wings of an eagle are given to the woman, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. When God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, we, we read that He bore them on eagles' wings and brought them to Himself, Exodus 19, verse 4. But here, the woman is not just carried for a moment into the wilderness, she's given the wings. It's like she gets God on the inside and The church does have God on the inside, does she not? By way of the Holy Spirit. This is the promise of Isaiah 40, 31. They who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not be faint. Even in this present wilderness of worldliness, the church gets God as her Savior and Rescuer and Protector and Nourisher. Verse 15 Water like a river pours out of the dragon's mouth. And when rivers come out of the mouth in Revelation, it often refers to to hateful or deceiving speech. This 
is likely a flood of powerful words, deceptive words, and perhaps even demonic oppressors proceeding from Satan and the worldly powers under his influence. Satan wants to conquer the church. Did you know that? He has no interest in North Roanoke Baptist Church enduring. He wants to conquer the church. How? By ripping her away from the gospel. He wants us to follow the false prophets who are controlled by the spirit of the Antichrist. He wants us to follow those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh. He wants us to follow those who deny that Jesus is God. He wants us to follow those who boast of secret knowledge or of worldly success and fame rather than of the crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, and returning King Jesus. That's where he wants to keep us, distracted and deluded and polluted in our doctrine. We must not compromise the uncomfortable truths of the gospel in order to be comfortable in this world. God is our comfort, not the world. This, this might sound crazy to you this morning, and I might get some emails afterwards, but now everybody's listening. Um, there's, a, there's a part of me Yeah, I'm going to say it. There's a part of me that thanks God for what is happening in our culture right now. Cultural Christianity is dying. This bogus go to church, put an offering in, check off some boxes on my envelope Christianity, but never really have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is transforming me, that is counter-cultural, that is other-worldly, we're having to step up. It's happening in the workplace. You, you believe that and you want to stand for that in the workplace? People are losing their jobs because they're believers. People are losing friends on social media and in real life because they are believers. And, and there's a part of me, I, I know that's hard, culturally and in our society, but I thank God that it's, it's costing us something to stand for our king. Because not everybody who says they stand with the king stands with the king. It's about time we know whether you're for the king or against the king. And if you, if you can't see in our world the beastly powers striving to separate us from faithfulness to our king, wake up. The church is being tested, she's being sifted, and some are choosing the path of comfort and of compromise by just getting in with the world and compromising the gospel just a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and the next thing you know, you have no gospel at all. It's in Revelation chapter 14 that the gospel is called the eternal gospel, and if the gospel is eternal, that means it can't change. The same gospel that Jesus preached, that Paul preached, that the apostles preached, is our gospel. You're listening to some crazy guy and you're like, I can't discern this from what I read in the Bible. Stop listening. The gospel in the true church of Christ, the promise of Revelation chapter 12, the gospel will stand and the true church of Christ will stand and she will even be strengthened in the fire that's the promise of verse 16. God protects the woman. Somehow, the earth swallows the dragon's lies and preserves his true church. Those who 
compromise with the world, to be embraced by the world, will be like Satan's deception, swallowed whole. But the true church of Christ, which is founded solely on the true and unchanging gospel of Christ, will stand. And because Christ, excuse me, because Satan could not conquer the Messiah, because he could not conquer the church, notice what he does in verse 17. He goes after our children. Don't miss that progression from verse 1 to verse 17. First, Satan goes after Christ. Second, he goes after the church. And finally, he goes after our children. The rest of her offspring. He goes after Jesus and he can't stop Jesus. So then he goes after the gospel upon which the true church of God is founded. But the true gospel will prevail. And then finally, he's like, I'll just, I'll just pick off individuals. These are individual Christians keeping the commandments and holding to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, they're living out the gospel no matter the cost because they can't get over the fact that Jesus paid it all. And Satan has no interest in you enduring or persevering to the end. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your school life, he wants you to throw in the towel and adopt the message of the world. What are these commandments that we keep? To, to love God and to love neighbor. To love the Lord our God with all our hope, with, with all our heart, soul, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the, the primary commandment we keep in loving the Lord is glorifying His Son. And we have all kinds of ways to glorify His Son. We, we pray, we worship, we commune, we sing. And we take Him to the nations through our faithful witness and our faithful living. Satan wants to attack us individually. He wants to attack our spiritual offspring. And you know how he's doing it, right? Do you recognize the lies of Satan? What, is, what does he say? Children are a burden, not a blessing. They're going to cost you too much. They're going to take too much of your time. You're not going to get your you time in your marriage. Don't have too many kids if you have any kids at all. He makes us think our kids, once we have them, that they have more time than they really do. Oh, it's okay that they don't really know any of the Bible yet. It's okay that they're not familiar with the gospel. It's okay that they are very familiar with a million apps on their iPad and have no knowledge of the gospel or of Jesus Christ, and now they're five, and they're teaching Grandma how to run the iPad, but they couldn't tell you one thing about the Word of Christ. And now they're 10. Well, i got plenty of time. I'm going to send them to the youth group, and they'll get it all in youth group, and it'll work out. But I, it's okay. I'm not going to help them get it at home. And then they're 18 years old, and they go to Virginia Tech, and they get some crazy philosophy professor who puts a bunch of mumbo-jumbo down their throat, and then it's the pastor's fault and the youth pastor's fault why they never darken the door of the church again. Bull. We have got to step up in the home. God is victorious, but Satan is real. And the only way we win is in Christ. All other stuff is, is loss. Satan doesn't want us to win. He doesn't want your kids to win. He doesn't want your grandkids to win. He doesn't want our youth group to thrive for the glory of God. He doesn't want our preschoolers. We had 20 preschoolers a couple weeks ago. He wants us to neglect the next generation. He wants us to neglect our own spiritual edification and discipleship. He wants us to, 
to put church on the sideline. And we miss one week and then we miss two. And then we come back and then we miss three weeks and then we miss four. And then we miss six months. And then we're there for Christmas. And here you are for Christmas. Do you know this, Jesus? Satan's going to keep attacking, but the book ends in a really good way. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will conquer. They will fight the good fight. They will be assaulted and afflicted. They will get knocked down, but they will not stay down. They will look back to Christ their King. And they will give their lives for the glory of Christ, even if it costs them their own. Make no mistake, church, right now we are in the wilderness, verse 14 and verse 6. This world is not our home. Christ will come and make it our home one day when the new heavens and the new earth break in, but right now it should not feel comfortable to be here. And our goal should not be to make the world as comfortable as it can be. We should embrace the uncomfortableness of the world so that we would find true rest and peace and comfort in the King of Kings. Knowing that it is there and there alone that we can refute Satan's lies and attacks and accusations because we have conquered not by our good deeds, not by our good looks, not by our good family heritage. We have conquered by the blood of Christ and the word of our testimony. So we end where we began with a declaration of victory. Jesus has come. He has paid the price of sin. And he shares his victory with any who trust in him now and forevermore. What is your testimony? Let's pray. God in heaven, what a Savior. What a King. What a Lord. God, I think about the Apostle Paul who says, among sinners I am chief. God, I am the chief of sinners. Wretched and fallen and corrupted. And my testimony is, I need Jesus. I belong to Jesus. He is my advocate and my confidence, my Savior and my King and my Lord. And God, if if there's anyone here today who, who recognizes they're in the wilderness, but they, they stand accused by Satan with no advocate because they don't know Christ, God, might today be the day that they trust in Christ. And God, if there's a believer who's been kicked around by Satan and looking to the world for the solutions, and today they've been awakened to the fact that rest is in Christ and in Christ alone, God, I pray whatever they need to do with you, that they would have the liberty in this place and in this time to do it. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.